This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. Today's episode is another installment of our Make Remake series. It's where we take a movie and its remake and compare the two. Not to see which one is necessarily better or worse, but to see how two movies can tell the same story both similarly and differently. In the past, we have paired such films like Cape Fear, The Tragedy of Macbeth, Dune, and more. On today's show, we are considering the 1952 Akira Kurosawa film Ikiru and the 2023 Oliver Hermanus film Living. We are taking a break from our Best Picture episodes, but this episode fits in nicely since Living was nominated for two Oscars, including Best Actor for Bill Nye and Best Adapted Screenplay. If you have not seen at least one version of this movie, be warned there will be plenty of spoiler talk in this episode. After being inspired by Leo Tolstoy's 1886 novella, The Death of Ivan Illich, Akira Kurosawa came up with the concept for Ikiru with the screenplay written by Shinobu Hashimoto and Hideo Ogani, two frequent collaborators of the director. The plot revolves around a boring bureaucrat named Kanji Watanabe, who learns that he has cancer and decides to spend his final months learning how to live life and what actually makes him happy. Watanabe is played by the legendary Japanese actor Takashi Shimura. The 2002 film was adapted by British-Japanese novelist Kazo Ishiguro for director Oliver Hermanus. This updated version stars Bill Nye as Williams, the civil servant with a terminal disease. Living takes place in the same early 1950s era that the Ikaru also took place, despite the original being a contemporary film and the remake being a period piece. Both films follow incredibly similar plots. The bureaucrat has spent years of his life pushing papers around, going along with the grind that local democracy can be. They live with their son and daughter-in-law who have a strained relationship with the older man. When they get a fatal diagnosis, they crumble. First, a wild writer takes the dying man under their wings and shows them how to gamble, drink, and chase women. In Akiru, this part is played by Hiro Tanaka, and Living is played by Tom Burke. After realizing this is not how to live life, Watanabe and Williams begin hanging out with a younger female colleague who seems to realize that there is more to life than work, so the men try to learn from the young woman. In Akiru, the young woman is played by Miki Odagiri, and in Living, it is Amy Lou Wood. Finally, the protagonists realize that they want to live a, leave a mark on the world around them, so they devote their remaining time to get a park built and to help a group of local women who can't get through the gears of an action that want the playground. Akiru and Living are both gentle character study films, reversing the trope that the older someone is, the wiser they are, and having lived more fulfilling lives. Here, the older person believes they need to learn from younger people how to live life to the fullest, until they learn that changing who they are isn't how to live the remaining time the best. Ultimately, the local government career path, a job they had started earnestly, is the best path to self-redemption. Rachel, Make Remake was a project started to watch two new movies and has become an avenue to see how many people remake Kurosawa films. Back on episode 183, we looked at Throne of Blood and the Tragedy of Macbeth. On episode 153, we did Yojimbo and a Fistful of Dollars. And way back on episode 43, we did Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven. At this trend, should we consider our next remake, make remake to be The Hidden Fortress in Star Wars A New Hope? I don't really get that joke. <laughs> a Hidden Fortress is the basis of Star Wars. I'm so sorry that that just landed <laughs> dead. I just oh, man. I I just, I'm so sorry. found that joke funny. Yeah, I know, I know that A New Hope, he did, like, Lucas did use... Akira Kurosawa. I shouldn't call him Akira. He he deserves better than a first name. Um, but I didn't. I didn't know the name of the movie. <laughs> I've never seen that one actually. Neither have I. Which is why it would make a perfect. Oh, there you go. Movie. Then we, we should. Then we should do it. Then we should do it. Yeah. And I haven't seen A New Hope in a really really long time. I have to say, in like a galaxy long long ago kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's a long long time ago that I've seen that. Um, are you are you a Star Wars person? I feel like you're not really like you like it, but you're not like a big Star Wars person. 
it's funny. I always sort of thought of myself as, sure, yeah, I'm a Star Wars person, but like I've had more than one person be like, Dakota, I know you're not really a Star Wars person. I'm like, no. <laughs> is it true? And then I think back to it. I'm like, you know what? I guess I'm not really. Like, I've, it's it's sort of like with the Marvel movies. I've seen just about yeah. everything they've made, but would I consider myself a fan? I don't know. There's definitely highs in you know the franchise. Yeah. Um, uh, Andor probably being the highest thing that Star Wars has ever made, uh, and The Last oh. Jedi being one of the worst. Sorry, Matthew. Uh, <laughs> a little shout out there since he loves to point out that he thinks that The Last Jedi is the the best thing that they've done. There's always one. Yeah. There's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't. I don't know. Are you a Star Wars person? I'm with. I'm like you. Like I'll watch it, and some of them I I like. Some of them I'm, I'm not. Like I really like um, Rouge One. Is it called Rouge One? Rouge One? Rouge One. Oh, man. Oh, I'm keeping that in. I'm having a day. Um, Rogue One, yes. Do you know why? Because everyone always writes Rouge One. And that was, I think that's in the, um, what are those, uh, that YouTube series that does the trailers? Honest Trailers? Honest Trailers. Yeah, they do one where I think they call it Rouge One all the time. (laughs) Because they're just making fun of the fact that everyone kept writing it as Rouge One. Anyways, um... I like Star Wars. I think I'm the same with you, where, but I also think it has something to do with the fan bases. Mm. And I would count Star Trek to be in the same thing. Like, I like Star Trek a lot, and I, I've watched, like, a few of the series. Like, I really enjoy it. But I would never, ever go out there and be like, yeah, I'm a big Star Trek fan. Because the second you do that, the actual, like, really rabid fans will come at you and be like, well, tell me about this. Like, do you know what color this shirt was in episode 261? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so I always be like, no, I'm not, I'm not a huge star wars fan or a huge star trek fan or a huge i'm not definitely not a huge marvel fan i like marvel but yeah but yeah i i find it's more the fan base reaction to it but anyways it's neither here nor there about uh, living or a hero so i really hope matthew simpson is not listening to this episode because we're just clapping <laughs> over everything he likes right now uh, i like star wars matthew we have talked about this star trek um, is a huge star, star trek. trek he is just a big star trek fan yeah. i was talking to him about cronenberg and then he just brought up the that Cronenberg oh, star he's in it yeah yeah and I always forget about that like he but that is one of his kind of handful of acting roles was in Star Trek yeah oh well anyway. yes there's neither here nor there uh, <laughs> before we sort of get into uh, these two movies uh, I feel like I need to do a little bit of a backstory on why we decided to do this you actually saw living last year at Sundance Festival is that is that correct yeah Sundance yeah, yeah. And basically, as soon as you saw it, you had messaged me and you're like, whenever this movie comes out, we need to do a make-remake on this. So this has been in the works for literally a year now. Because it took so long for this bloody movie to come out. Like, it it really... I know in Canada, it didn't get a theatrical release till literally end of December. Like, they just did it in time for um, Oscars consideration. Or, like, awards. Generally, awards consideration. Um, which was very frustrating to me because I kept looking out for it because I really did want to do this episode because I love living and I love Akira as well. Like I love both. Um, but the reason I think I love living so much and we obviously will get into this is I just think it's the best example of an adaptation of a classic movie because so many times that goes wrong. Um, I just reviewed a movie that it wasn't an adaptation, but you just, anyways, <laughs> uh, but I, I found that living was just like the perfect example of something like that, where uh, something that we see a lot today too, like adaptations, reboots, remakes, blah, 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 whatever you want to call them. And I thought living was just the, the one of the best examples I've seen in a very, very long time. Nice. And I love Del Nye because I think he's great. He's he great. is. Yes. <laughs> um, I guess we'll sort of talk about like a, a bit of an overview of thoughts of the movies. Where does uh, Akiru sort of stand in Kurosawa's filmography for you? uh pretty high i would say it's definitely in top half i've never actually thought to like rank all my all the akira kurosawa movies but it's definitely up in the top like top half for me Mm. um i really love that but this kind of story in general like i'm a real sucker for um movies or books that talk about like the mundanity of life um which i don't know what that says about me but (laughs) there's a book called stoner um, by John Williams. It's from 1965. And I adore that book. And it's, it's not about like a stone. His name is, his last name is stoner in the book. I always have to clarify that. Cause it's not a, a movie about like weed or anything or a book about weed. Um, 
but it's just about a man who's like a middle-aged guy who's going through life and it's just it's everything's so mundane and he's just so bored with life and he's just kind of chugging along and there's something about that which you know is reflected in Akira and living as well of, of that kind of again that middle-aged man I guess a bit more advanced in, in age in, in these movies but um who's just going through it like you're just going going through the motions of life and I think all of us can relate to that at some point in your life or another um you know especially when it comes to like going to work like you wake up go to the office come home blah blah blah, and and then that's just and then before you know it you're 65 and you're thinking about retirement um that was really depressing and I'm sorry but it's just uh, like for some reason that kind of topic has always fascinated me a lot so when I was starting to watch Akira Kurosawa movies this one kind of jumped out a little bit more than the others because um, I just thought it was yeah, kind of those those push points that I enjoy exploring and I enjoy reading about, watching and and discussing. But um, but through him, and I think that like I was very curious to see how he would do it through his storytelling, through his you know cinematic lens. Nice, yeah. Uh, this was a, a pretty big blind spot for me for Kurosawa. Uh, I, I've only seen five of his films. I still have several more pretty big blind spots to get through, like like Ron and High and Low and uh, The Hidden Fortress being like some of the other really big ones. But um, I've, I guess I've seen like some of his other biggest ones. Seven Samurai is still my favorite film of his, and it's mm-hmm. it's sort of nice where. Uh, all the movies I have seen of his have been samurai films, so it's kind of nice to see a non-samurai film of his. And I know he didn't only make samurai films, um, but that's obviously that is what he's. For. I was gonna say that is what he's best known for, right? Yeah. So it's not. I don't. I think you'd be forgiven to think not to think that he only did samurai, but like forgiven that those are the films that you first went to. Yeah. It, it's sort of similar to like the, the Martin Scorsese thing where he's most mm-hmm. known for gangster films, but he mm-hmm. has done plenty of other stuff as well. And Kurosawa had a very long career and, and made a whole lot of very different movies. And, and this is one of the ones that uh, that he made that doesn't focus on either being a period piece or a samurai film, whatever sort of uh, however you want to describe it. But yeah, it, it's instead, it's, it's almost very, it's a lot similar to something that uh, Yasujiro Ozu would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's a bit more flair to Kurosawa's style than Ozu, who is very much a I put the camera on the tripod in that, and I don't touch the camera at all sort of mentality. Uh, but both very similar in in style of let's sort of get to the root of what does it mean to be a person who is alive, or in this case, someone who is dying. Which I would say too, though his his samurai work kind of I think one of the reason why his samurai films have endured for so long is because they're not just like quote unquote action movies, right? Like they're not just movies that are just about, you know, I was going to say wham, bam, thank you, man. But that's a different, (laughs) that's a whole different thing. It's like, they're not just about like um, just fights. Like they're not just fighting and and that kind of thing. Uh, His movies have always had pretty deep character studies and always searching. I always found them to be like searching for humanity in, Mm -hmm. in his protagonist and his antagonist as well. And so I think that like, that's what makes him such a great, like, that's why we still talk about him, right? Like after so many years, um, I say after so many years, but I always forget that like he was working up until the nineties, <laughs> but in my head, he's like, he's, he's a very old filmmaker that is from belongs to a different era, but yeah, no, he worked for a long time. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that like, that's what makes it. And I, you, you brought Martin Scorsese up. I think that that's, it's the same thing, like a really good filmmaker. It's not just about them being able to do a genre really well. And when they do that genre, there's always something deeper and something more meaningful within it. Um, and that's what makes them great. Like that's why in you know 50 some odd years, people are still going to be talking about Kurosawa and they're still going to be talking about Scorsese as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely true. Uh, on, the, on the other side, living, I think what's most notable about this is it kind of feels like it's Bill Nye's biggest part he's ever had in a, mm-hmm. in a movie that sort of made its way to, to North America. Obviously he's had a very long and lengthy career in, in England. Um, but you look at the stuff he's most well known for. It's always been sort of supporting roles. Yeah. Uh, you know, his, his work with Edgar Wright and Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, very small parts in both of them. Uh, his work in Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, oh, he's so good in that. He's so very good, good in that, but it's you he's know, so it's, it's a it's a smaller role. Yeah. Um, yeah. Love Actually, smaller role, same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a movie I really loved a couple years ago, Emma. 
smaller role. And so I I think this is a sort of role where we finally get to see him, you know, truly commanding the screen and he really does. And so it's sort of fascinating that like you think about it, like, Oh yeah, Bill Nye, great actor. And then you're like, Oh, he's only, this is first Oscar nomination. And you wonder why. And then you kind of go through the list of movies. He's never really had like a super substantial, really meaty part. Which is fascinating because we do consider him to be like of his age group, especially like we're, he's one of those actors, right? Like one mm-hmm. of the ones that we we would have um, reverence for in, in in the acting field. But it's kind of it's kind of insane that he hasn't. But you know, there's always been um, there's like a long line of character actors who are always in supporting roles, but they're tremendous. Like I think of Sam, Sam Rockwell as like a really good example of that. It's just someone who's he ha- he's had obviously main roles, but like he's best when he's in a supporting character. Like he's best when he's in a supporting role. Um, but the thing with Bill Nye that I find interesting is that I wouldn't necessarily call him a character actor, really. Like I, I don't look at him and think of him as a character actor. Um, but yet you're right. Like he he's always just supporting in supporting roles, which is not a bad thing. Um, but it, it's bonkers to me that after all these years, this is kind of the first time that he's had. Um, this is all him. Like this movie is entirely him. And it, it starts and ends with, with his character and, and him on screen. So um, that's, it's just nuts to think of, of an actor that we hold up pretty, I think we'll hold him up pretty high or like we, we put him in pretty high regard. Um, and yet, yeah, hasn't, hasn't had too many times to, to shine, but I, I suppose he probably has worked on the stage a lot, especially in London. I'd have to imagine that. Yeah, I, I imagine so. I don't really know if he is a theater actor as well. I know he does a lot of like, uh, British uh, television work mm-hmm, where like, doing mm-hmm. like small series and stuff like that, where I'm, I'm sure any British listeners are probably pulling their, their hair out <laughs> being like, how are you not naming, you know, X, Y, and Z shows that he worked on where he was the lead Z. character in that. But like just going on like films, he, he just never has really been given the opportunity to, to really lead a project uh, in a way like this, as far as I'm aware of. So I'm going to say I'm on his Wikipedia right now, and he he has done a lot of stage work um, for the okay. National Theatre in London, which makes a lot of sense. I'm but also, sure. a lot of radio work for BBC, which makes hmm. sense again, because his voice he's is incredible. Voice. Like, yeah. he's got a great voice. So, yeah, completely makes sense. And a lot of video game work. <laughs> Who knew? Hmm. Bill Nye just doing his thing. Good for him. Yeah. Let's get into uh, some similarities between the two films. We're going to point out some stuff that both films do similarly and talk about how they were able to to get across the same plot, emotion, structure, that sort of thing. Uh, And speaking of structure, both (laughs) films are almost identical. We meet the same cast of characters from the libertine writer to the young female co-worker that help the protagonist on their journey. But the key is how the stories unfold. We learn early on that Watanabe and Williams will die in six months. And after we see them unsuccessfully try to live, they decide to throw themselves into work and build a playground for their community. Except right after they decide to do this, the scene cuts to their wakes. They have died without us seeing their work. This is where the the second act of both films end. And we then see they did indeed build the park with their co-workers filling in the gaps on how they succeeded. The plot device is key to understanding the humility and dedication they had knowing that they were dying. And so it was just so interesting seeing, uh, because I watched Ikiru first, wondering if living was going to copy the exact same format of of the plot. And, and sure enough, it absolutely does. And, and I'm really glad they kept it that way because I think it's sort of the defining characteristic of these films. Yeah, I, lo- I, I my favorite um, Kurosawa movie is uh, Rashomon, and that's obviously one where the structure of the film is uh, like half of what makes that movie great, right? Probably more than half yeah. of what makes that movie great. But um, I've always been really interested because to me, I think the first time I saw this movie, it, 
you kind of think it's the end, like when he dies and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then you realize there's like an hour more to go. <laughs> like, oh, interesting. Um, but I love that. That to me is such a great thing about Kurosawa as a filmmaker is, you know, he, he wasn't ever afraid to not go linear and not in like a confusing Chris Nolan way of, of being like times backwards. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not like that. Like it's, it's done in this very, very logical way too, though, you know, like it, it just makes sense when you, when you watch it and you kind of think you, it would have taken so much away from the story and the impact of it if they had just gone completely linear and said, you know, the end is literally him dying. Um, Cause well, I, I say that actually, I think the story probably would have still worked in a way, but I think that this just gives it a, such a greater punch to it. And I'm glad that um, they kept the same thing in, in living because again, I, I think it's such a huge part, like same with Rashomon. If you were to re- redo Rashomon and you didn't do it kind of, you didn't follow that structure. Um, you would just, what's the point of kind of redoing it then like that to me, the structure of this movie is a massive part of why it works. And um, it's also like I, I just think I associate it quite a bit with um, how Kurosawa makes his movies. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, and that's sort of hitting the nail on the head. Is you know we were talking about earlier why we love Kurosawa and you know able to make these action movies, but actually have a meaning and a message and be introspective. But another real aspect is his the way he formats his films and the structures mm-hmm. that he uses and plays around with the audience's expectations of how they assume. Uh, this story is going to unfold and, and here yeah it, it quite literally is the second act ends with him being like all right i'm gonna build this park and then the next scene they're at his funeral like it, it's yeah. quite, it's, it's actually quite jarring like the first time you're like oh wh- what's going on what's going on here and we think that maybe they're gonna do a, a proper flashback but they're not instead it's revealed through his co-workers telling these stories and then we see how they went about it. And it almost makes you wonder if there could be a chance for a little bit of an unreliable narrator aspect, but I don't really feel watching either of these films that they decided to go with that because anytime you're dealing with someone else telling someone's story, you have to sort of factor in the unreliable narrator could be a a trope that they are using and they don't, and they really don't seem to go for that. It's interesting you you bring up that like as as um like the unreliable narrator because in a way it there is an unreliable narrator in that the the Watanabe he's the like he's the one that was kind of lying to everyone well not lying yeah he kind of was lying um, it was a lie by omission of not saying anything but it's not um not in the way that we normally think of the unreliable narrator like um like Joker is kind of thing that's popping into my mind like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like that where we don't like we do know the truth, right? Like we as an audience know what is going on. We know that he has cancer. We know why he's with this young girl and things like that. Like we, we know all the, the truth behind Watanabe, but the characters in it don't know. So in a sense, there is kind of an unreliable narrator, but the audience is not a part of that. Like we, we're very aware of what's going on. And I find that that is really interesting. Um, that whole like that kind of how do you, how would you describe it? I don't I don't know if there's like a specific word to describe it, but like that whole kind of tro- not trope, that whole element of the movie of him not really telling people that he's sick and that he's dying. I found that to be um, one of the more fascinating parts of the film uh, and in the reaction to because like his son is such a jerk. I really don't like <laughs> his son. His yeah. son in both movies, the son I hate him. He's so annoying. Um, but you know, everybody's response is because, you know, it, it, you kind of put yourself into this, those, the, the, the position of those people. If you didn't know he was dying, then yeah, you would think kind of things were a bit off. But um, I, I love that kind of that missing link for them. And the fact that it was missing all the way into him dying. Um, like I, I didn't kind of think that it went that far. Like when you see the picture of Watanabe or um, Williams at the funeral, um, you kind of, I, I don't know, in my head, I just assumed everybody figured it. Like, he eventually told everyone that he had cancer and that he, mm-hmm. he was dying. But then it comes out like, oh, no, he never told anyone. And I'm like, oh, man, how brutal would that be? Especially as the son, because you're such a jerk to him all the time. And then you find out, oh, he was dying and he never told me. I was like, that's a gut punch right there. To not, mm-hmm. like, for your father to die and he never told you that he was sick. And you lived with him, like <laughs> you lived with him. Um, that's yeah. I saw so that was that's one aspect of the of of the story that I've always found really really fascinating. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, another another point that was also very similar in both is both Watanabe and Williams uh, sing the same song twice in the film. In Akiru, when Watanabe is out on the town, he decides to sing uh, Gondola no Uta in a solemn manner. At the end of the film, when we see him sitting on a swing on the night he dies in the park he helped build, he sings the song to himself again. In Living, William sings The Rowan Tree while out in a bar and does so again on the swing set. The Ikaru scene of Takashi Shimura sitting on the swing set while snow is gently falling down is one of the most iconic images in film history. And I, and I think it's one that a lot of people probably have seen and maybe not know what it is from or or the context behind it. But it's one of those images that when you do know, it it, it makes it so much more heartbreaking too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got a very melancholic feel to it because this is a man who is probably at his happiest and it is the moment before he dies too, which is so interesting. Uh, but it, it, it's sort of, I, I like that they decided to keep the aspect of uh, the lead singing the same song, obviously different songs in the movies, but I think that's irregardless of, of the point here. Um, the same song in both the, the middle when they're learning how to live and then again when they finally have learned how to live. Uh, were those scenes that worked for you? Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I, I don't know if you do this, but whenever I think of old movies, like I, I tend to think of like the 1950s as being just so far away, even though it wasn't really like, like my parents were born in the fifties. Like it's not that far away. Um, but sometimes I'll watch these older movies and I'll just be like, Oh, like they had hair dryers back then, like them, (laughs) you know? And this is kind of the same thing where I'm like, Oh, like, they're, they're playing with music, like with lyrics, you know, and I know that musicals were obviously a really big thing for a very long time in, in film, but the idea of um, like using songs with, with lyrics as a way of kind of creating a circle in your film to me, I don't know why I just think of that as like a very modern thing to do, which it's not clearly like it's, it's just, it's a storytelling device that I'm sure it even predates this movie. Like I'm sure it's something that has been going on for a very, very long time. Um, but I love that. I, I like in, you know, any, any time that you can kind of put a bow on a movie, um, it's beautiful. And if you can do it really well, like a really pretty bow, um, it's, it's always very satisfying at the end. And even though, like you said, it's very, very melancholic and in, in that like he's about to die. Like in, in the, the last few seconds he's about to die, he's singing this song that obviously means a lot to him and and has made him think and and question and wonder. Um, and then, the, you know, the fact that it's happening just, just before he passes away, it's kind of beautiful, even though it's very sad. Like it's, it's it, it has a very bittersweet quality to it um, that I really appreciate like the morbid self that I am. Um, I find it really nice. Uh, and I also, you know, you talked about the difference in the song and like, they obviously didn't use the same song in, in both movies, but it kind of goes to what I was saying right at the beginning of that. This is like living is such a great adaptation. And one of the reasons I think it is, is because it really like goes into British culture in post-war, whereas Ikiro is very post-war Japanese culture. Um, you know, Oliver Hermanus, when he went, he, he's South African too, I think, which is interesting. Yes, yeah, like, yeah. He put, like, j- being able to kind of put those notes and those beats that really relate to post-war Britain, post-war London. Um, I think it, it's, it's it was done really, really well and really gracefully. And so I love that there's like that change in the song that you go from, you know, a, a, obviously a, like a Japanese song that's a bit more kind of folkish and then something that like that song that uh, was called Rowan tree, right? It's, mm-hmm. it, it's so British sounding, right? Like it's, and I, I love that. Like I, I love those, um, those kind of adapt, not adaptations, but just the, the adjustments that, that he made for, um, for living. Yeah. They, I, I think interestingly is they, they kind of, while the, the scenes play out similarly, mm-hmm. uh, the beats are played differently which which i find fascinating mm-hmm. because uh in akiru he sings it in its you know he, he asked the the piano player to play the song and so the piano player's playing it, and then he's sort of sitting on the bar singing to himself and then people are slowly learning that he is singing along and he, he's basically on the verge of, of completely breaking down at this point uh and and the crowd isn't sure if it's because he, he's too drunk or, or what's the story behind all that and it's sort of interesting, whereas in Living, he is basically uh, 
singing along with uh, the piano player while mm-hmm. they're doing it. So it's it's more of a like a karaoke type of performance. Not that it's played up that way, but but that's <laughs> sort of the way the setup is. Um, and so they, they have very different connotations. And in the sadness that is in uh, the the Ikiru version of it is just so palpable. And in in a little tough to watch at times. I mean, he sings it in such a unique manner. And I was reading. I wish I had, I had kept the quote where apparently Kurosawa asked him to sing it like, uh, like I'm paraphrasing here, but like an alien who is trying to imitate a human's voice and emotions <laughs> and give it this otherworldliness. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. That's it. I I find like again I keep harping on about like the cultural differences, but. To me, there's there's a parallel between Japanese and British culture in that they're both quite restrained and conservative, um, mm-hmm. traditionally speaking, anyways. Um, and very much so, you know, you have the stiff upper lip with the Brits, and then with the Japanese, it's all about honor and saving face and and this and that. Um, and and they're very similar, and so, but then at the same time, the way that it kind of comes out is all it's very different at the same time, you know, like when you talk about in uh, in Ikaru with Watanabe, it's like, it's so intense. The way that he sings that song, it's just intense. Like you feel, like you said, it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, like the way that he, the outpouring of emotion that comes from him, it is so uncomfortable. And part of it is probably because you're not really used to seeing men, especially um, display that kind of emotion and vulnerability in public. Um, and on the living side of it, it's kind of the same where it's again showing a vulnerability, but it's in a very British way. Like it's a very, um, it's a bit softer in a way. And I don't know if people would really refer to the Brits as being soft, but like it's, it's a bit more, even, even in showing vulnerability, it, there's still a restraint there. Yeah. Um, whereas when the Japanese are showing the vulnerability, it's intense. Like it's just a lot of emotion. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I like, it's, it's, it's interesting to see those parallels um, because I mean, you said it perfectly. It's like, it's, it's the same, but it's the beats are completely different and it's felt very differently. Uh, And yeah. And that's why both of them are just such great. They're both really good movies. I think this, I I can't, I might be wrong. Is this the one that of of the ones that I've done? I think this is the one that I I'm very equal on both movies. Like I like both of them very much. So probably the same amount. Whereas I think the other make remakes that we've done, there's always been one that I clearly preferred over the other. Um, but for this one, it's like, I love both of them a lot. And for those reasons, like the reasons that we've been talking about. Yeah, I, w- I would say I, I sort of agree with you. I think there's been a couple that, like, I, I really loved both uh, Throne of Blood and Tragedy of Macbeth. Those are yeah, ones I, right. I, I really adored. But like, I looked yeah. at the rest of them and there's usually one I... Uh, really preferred a lot mm-hmm. more than the other going back all the way to sort of the beginning uh to the point where sometimes it's actually quite hard it's it's very rare that a remake is equally as good as its yeah. original usually it's, it's one way or another where either the remake absolutely surpasses it or the original is far superior but it, it's it's almost never on equal footing yeah so that's and what I, I mean and i think that that's like good play on on um hermanus's um part because this is not an easy movie to adapt, right? Like yeah. it's not any, especially for, I mean, there, there might be a reason why it took so long for the movie to come out. And I don't think it made a huge splash at like the box office or anything, no. but this kind of movie, I don't, it's not really meant for 2022, 2023 audiences in a way, because it, it requires a lot of attention. Like it, it really requires a lot of patience with this movie. Cause I, I watched um, living with my brother and he was not feeling it. <laughs> he was just like he was like this is this is taking so long he's like and he kept asking me the dumbest questions um throughout the whole movie I was, luckily i'd already seen it but um yeah like it's not it's not typically a movie that you would see made today and i think the only reason it kind of gets made is because it's an adaptation of a classic film but it's definitely not a movie that um is for modern day audiences which is kind of sad to say i suppose yeah I, I would say uh, I think Akiru is the better film, not by much, but by a little okay. bit, because I, I think Kurosawa, you see more of his artistic flair in his shot selection and, and things like that. Like the final scene of, of 
him sitting on the swings is is shot way better in Ikuro than yeah. it is in Living, in my opinion. Um, yeah. But that said, I think Nai gives a bit better of a performance over it's a very uh, different performance. It is very, it's, I it is think very it's just different. very different. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I could say one is better than the other, but they're both just such different types of actors. Like it's, they are, you know. Um, I, I would. Yeah, I don't know if one is better. I would say Shimura. He's the thing with him. I always find interesting is like he doesn't blink. I feel like he doesn't no. blink. It's just his eyes are so much. They're so much, and it makes me uncomfortable. They always are so sad looking too. They're very sad looking. Yeah, but um, but yeah, it's very very different performances and very different actors. Like they're just they're completely different. But yet yeah, it's isn't it? It's like it's fascinating that they can come at it from two very different perspectives. And yet it lands the same punch. Like I do think at the end, like they both nail it and they both do within the context of the movie that they're in. um, They really, both of them kind of like they smash it to to be more modern. Like they smash it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Shimura, if if people aren't familiar, I would probably categorize him as probably Japan's, you know, second most prolific actor of all time after Toshiro Mifune. And like mm-hmm. Shimura, much like Mifune, had a very long working relationship with Kurosawa. I'm looking at his uh, filmography and I count at least 15 movies they did together. And there might be some more that I'm not recognizing, but like he was also in such films like the original Godzilla in Quieten and, and stuff like that. So he he's definitely sort of on that Mount Rushmore of, you know, the greatest all time actors in coming For from sure. Japan. Also, I'm on his Wikipedia now, and it's a lot of scrolling to get through his filmography. Like, it's just a lot (laughs) of scrolling. There's a lot of movies on here. It's so impressive. It's so impressive to me when I look at actors from back then. And I I mean, I think that maybe we're in a better spot now in terms of how much actors work. But, like, it's impressive how much people worked back then. Like, it's really impressive how many movies got made in a year. Like, each actor's turning out, like, three, four movies a year, which is... yeah probably too much but it's just insane yeah well same for directors they'd also be you know turning out a handful of movies a year too it's true yeah i mean that was studio system kind of thing wasn't it he made nine movies in 1938 wow who does that like that's crazy (laughs) it's just nuts but anyways yeah no you're right like he's he's an incredibly prolific actor and like um and like kind of different to to what we were talking about bill nye where he is a very prolific actor but um, somehow kind of flies under the radar sometimes, whereas yeah. um, Shimura definitely, I don't think, was that. I think he he was very um, recognized in his time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's funny you were talking about your brother really not enjoying the film. I went and saw this <laughs> in theaters, and it was uh, midday midday and during the week and it was mostly i was probably the youngest person in, in the crowd <laughs> back in 30 to 40 years um and and after the movie ended there was three older ladies that were kind of sitting next to me and they were talking about it and one woman kept being like i didn't like it it was too slow it was too boring i almost fell asleep <laughs> in the first hour the second hour was way better and then another woman was like no but it was a really good character study i appreciate that like the first hour Aww. really set up who he was and that's why when it got to the more exciting stuff in the second half we understood it better and the other one was like no no it was boring i was falling asleep i couldn't stand it <laughs> i love that there are people that are having this kind of conversation though after a movie i think that that's incredible that's yeah. very cute and then they were also talking sweet. about me like there's a lot of japanese names in, the, in these credits i wonder if it's based on a japanese book so I over. <laughs> I was like, it's actually based on a 1950s japanese movie and they're like oh thank you for telling us you you were the actually guy. You're like the actually. actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, la- ladies, let me tell you about the history of this film. Let me tell you about a little guy named Kier- Kiersawa. <laughs> Sit back and get ready for a little lecture about cinema. <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> do, do a live right podcast right now. <laughs> That's very cute, though. I like that. I you know again, it's not. I mean, I'm sure even Ikaru back when it came out, like it probably wasn't. It's just not a movie for everybody because. Like I said, it really requires a lot of patience. They're both long films. Like Ikaru is like two and a half hours, basically. Yeah. Like the and and for a two and a half hour movie, that not to say not a lot happens, but it's it's very slow. Like it is slow, and there's there's no denying that. But that's kind of the point. Like the point is the film is supposed to feel slow uh, to go uh, uh, according to to the story. Um, but yeah, it's just it's definitely not forever. This isn't a movie that I, I recommend I would recommend to a lot of people. Like I think you need to be a particular type of person 
mm-hmm. that I would be like, go watch this because I think you'll love it. Like I told you, I think once I watch, I said that you have whenever this comes out, you have to watch it because you're going to love it. Yeah, um, but it's also a period and, piece, and you know I love period pieces. It's true. It's very true. You love period pieces and the British period as well. Like you're all Oof. about that. So there you go. But but I just knew like even I mean I think it's it's I think it's just a really interesting. It's an interesting story that I actually wouldn't mind seeing this adapted to like a modern day. You yeah. Know, I, without getting too Gen Z or millennially, like I think that it would be an interesting kind of story to continue. Um, to explore in different eras because the post-war thing is very interesting especially for a bureaucratic position that they have like a parks department because after the war obviously there are all these countries but particularly britain and japan are looking to rebuild yeah um and so that you know we don't really have thankfully we don't have something like that today um but it would just be interesting to kind of see what the interpretation of it would be in a modern day setting um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to 1950s britain yeah if only to be alive for one day. But I realize it. I don't know how. Do you think we should alert the police, Bart? What would the police care if he's a couple of hours late for work? A couple of hours late for work. Who would ever have thought? This man, who until yesterday was living a shell of an existence. All right, let's move on. Let's look at the differences now, which despite both movies being similar, there were still some very important details that were changed. Early in the film, uh, both Watanabe and Williams leave work early to go to the doctors. In Akiru, Watanabe sits in the waiting room after we've seen him pop aspirin a few times. While there is another patient there who sees him grimacing and explains his symptoms in detail, that first it starts out as a small ulcer in his stomach and then it's growing. Now it's cancerous and how this is essentially a death sentence and he'll be dead in six months. This freaks out Watanabe. And when he finally goes to see the doctor, he asks for the honest truth. Instead, the doctor just says it's an ulcer and he will be fine. A dis- <laughs> uh, this is going to be a decision that we'll discuss a little bit later uh, in a bit, but in living Williams goes to the doctor and he says Williams condition is fatal, but we don't actually learn what the disease is at any point during the film. I'm not even sure they, they even say cancer at any point. They just say my illness, my sickness, things like that and repeat it. And we never really see any sort of um, lead up to it. Like at least with an uh, Ikiru, uh, we see him taking the aspirin. So that's sort of a, you know, something we see people that have ulcers and stomach pain. That's how they try to do it. In fact, can inflame the disease. Uh, whereas in living, we get sort of none of that at all uh, throw any point in the movie. I also think there in Ikiru, there's one scene that I really like where um, it's just before he goes to see the doctor and he's in the waiting room. And there's another man there who's telling him like, hey, if you get this symptom yeah. or like if he says this, this is what he means. And I thought that that scene was really fun is not the right word, but like it's it's a, it's an interesting scene. And in, like that there's this kind of younger ish and he's not young, but he's definitely younger than Watanabe um, just telling him like, hey, look out for this stuff. And if the doctor says this and that's that. Whereas, yeah, in, in living, um, I, it's funny, you you jet like literally just before you were, we were recording, you mentioned um the, the thing about them not mentioning the disease I that completely flew over my head that they didn't mention it um because I think I just assumed I guess yeah my brain just made the connection I guess but mm-hmm. um but yeah it's interesting that they don't really mention it but I think the more interesting bit is uh the way that the doctors treat it like of saying no 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 it's not cancer and yes you're gonna die um which is like a very if if um people have seen the movie farewell the farewell um, it's a very odd. I was just, I was just having dinner with some friends last week, and we were just talking about this of saying like for some reason, and we were talking about Chinese people, but I think Japanese and I think Koreans are very similar in this. Um, we just don't tell people when they have cancer. I don't know why. Like when my grandfather had cancer, they didn't tell him. I don't. I don't know why. Like I don't know why. Like it's just a thing that you don't tell people when when there's. Uh, not not just specifically cancer, but like when you have some sort of terminal illness, um, cancer being probably the most common one. Uh, and I, I don't get why this is the case for, for us um, East Asian Oriental people, but it is a thing. And so I, 
you know, I like that. I don't think Akira Kurosawa is thinking about that being like, well, Japanese people don't do that. It's just, that's just how it is. <laughs> yeah. Like you just don't tell people that they have, especially older people. Like you just don't tell them that they have cancer. Um, because I think that, I guess the mindset is what's the point? Like they're old anyways, and they're going to get sick and they'll pass away, but they're old. So what's the big deal? Um, and you don't want to worry them. Like you don't want to kind of burden them with, with the knowledge that they have cancer. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a very interesting thing. Whereas in, western culture it's just a bit more blunt like you're gonna die good luck Mm -hmm. i'm like good good job you have the nhs and uh we'll we'll see what we can do to make you comfortable and that's about it (laughs) yeah but yeah it's it's an interesting kind of it's a difference of that to me is a very poignant difference in culture of how they would uh how a doctor and and how other people too would um handle a diagnosis like that yeah, yeah. And and I think Kurosawa sort of needed to include the waiting room scene because mm-hmm. otherwise we would have got the scene of him in the doctor's office and the doctor being like, no, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. And the movie almost I, – I almost wondered if it was going to play out because we didn't get the actual diagnosis from the doctor. I was like, oh, maybe it was a – actually was a mistaken diagnosis or he actually will you know, eventually end up being fine. It wasn't until he died – that I was like, oh no, that actually was true. And so it was that's why I was doing a little bit of reading afterwards and sort of, you know, what you had you had touched on there. And like I know the farewells basically an entire movie dedicated to the subject of do we tell them they're dying or not? But uh, apparently American audiences were so confused and and like <laughs> this is a giant plot hole. Why why did they not tell them that why yeah. did the doctor lie to them? And they had to be like, no, in Japan, this is sort of how people receive fatal diagnoses. They don't get them. They don't want them to have their last months of their life spent worrying and upset and sad when instead they could be, you know, just continue living life as they always had. It's weird though. Like I, I don't, maybe, maybe it's cause I grew up here, but like, it's weird. It's a weird thing to not tell somebody something like that. Like, you know, I, I think when, when my grand, I was like 13 when my grandfather passed away. So it was a long time ago and I don't, I don't really, I remember it, but like, I wasn't a part of those discussions because I was very young. But when I look back on it, I'm like, that's kind of messed up that they didn't tell him. I was like, that, that's really messed up. Uh, like my grandmother had COVID. They didn't even tell her she had COVID. What? She, she was fine. Just FYI. She's absolutely fine. My grandmother's <laughs> fine. And and that, I wouldn't bring it up if she wasn't. But they didn't tell her because they were like, they don't want to worry her. And I was like, but shouldn't she know these things? She but it's, still has it's, the symptoms. It's, it's, I know they were just like, oh, you just have like a flu or like the cough or whatever. Like it, oh it's God. very strange. I know it's, we, it's weird. And I, I know that it's a very, very strange kind of mental gymnastics that we do that for like, it's, and it's out of the intention is out of like, kind of love but more so just like you don't you just don't want to bother people i think that's like a really big thing is you don't want to burden people with with something like this and and stress people out when i suppose the idea is why stress someone out when when like there's nothing they can do about it Mm -hmm. kind of thing you know like after especially click for cancer like at a certain age um you just won't do things like chemotherapy and radiation and things like that because you're you're quite elderly anyways um, but it's weird. It is weird. And I, I can't blame like Western audiences for being like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> like, this is strange. Cause I, I think it's odd too. Like I accept it as this is a thing that we do, but it is weird. It's very, very weird. So did you see Akiru first or living first? Akiru first. Um, so then based, time ago, though. Yeah, yeah. based on your, your sort of background of, of having similar experiences when the doctor didn't actually diagnose him, did that raise any flags in your head or did you just sort of accept it at face value? Um, accept it like as in like he does have cancer, but yes. he they're just not telling him. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. I was like, yeah, of course. Like I, I didn't think about it because I think when I watched it, I don't think I was thinking too much about like cultural, th- like uh, it's only when I watched living that I it kind of, I realized they, they had to change it because it's different. Yeah. And I think even watching The Farewell, like, I don't even think I, I quite process that we do something like this and how strange it is until I saw The Farewell. I'm like, oh, it is kind of messed up that we don't <laughs> we don't talk about this. I never really thought about that because I don't know. It's just it's just the way things are. right? Like, you, that's just the way I grew up. And that's just how I knew it to be, because it's not like I was talking to 
like my white friends about, Hey, when your family gets a cancer diagnosis, what do you guys do? Like <laughs> yeah. what's, what's going on there? You know, it's, it's nothing that you really talk about. So for me, it was just, that's just how it's done. And yeah, I, I don't think it didn't even cross my mind until I saw living and I realized, Oh yeah, they, they have to change it for living. Cause it wouldn't make sense in, um, in Britain that they yeah. didn't tell you. The only part, in living where I, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit was we don't get a, a proper diagnosis. And uh, the best we get in this is the the classic scene of uh, him uh, coughing into a handkerchief and, yeah. and there's blood splots in it. And I'm just like, oh, really? We're, we're doing one of these in 2022? <laughs> hey, oh I, my God, he's dying. He's got blood on his handkerchief. It's the most annoying thing that they, anytime somebody is dying, it doesn't matter what you're dying from. Yeah. It really doesn't matter. You're di- if you're dying, you bet they will have a handkerchief and it will be white and there will be red spots on it. Like that's a hundred percent. They'll look happen. at it and be embarrassed and hide it away. <laughs> it's so, I always think of um, breaking bad. Like if you, if you watch breaking bad and you did like, the only way that you knew that he continued to have cancer was because oh, yeah. he kept coughing and kept yeah. coughing blood up. And you're like, all right, we, we remember, well, you still have cancer. We get it. <laughs> like, yeah. But yeah, it's, that's a, it's a weird little thing that they do isn't it in in uh in in dying movies that they feel that like I guess, is there no other way of showing it yeah yeah i, I guess, guess it's, in, it's in, a shorthand of showing and not telling that sort yeah. of thing but yeah but i guess but like in akiru he he what does he do he kind of hunches over they um, both they both have scenes of them having to uh excuse themselves to throw up Yes, yes, which makes sense. Like his yeah. stomach cancer, so it makes sense. But he's he's like, well, assuming living it follows the same thing. Yeah. Um, but I think they do the hunch over, and like he's in pain because it's his stomach. And then the thing I found funny was like his voice kind of goes, mm. and I was thinking, I was like, would stomach cancer like mess up your voice? Because I'm like, lung cancer certainly would. Sure. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're cancer. if you're coughing and throwing up constantly. I'm sure. Yeah, true. Number on on your larynx. It's true. I guess and you're just tired, like you're in pain, so you're just a bit more tired. Yeah. So your your voice would reflect that. But yeah, I get yeah, it's 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 a funny thing that that coughing into a handkerchief nonsense. But but how else would we know? Like right. this is how yeah. we, we know that Bill Nye is not well. That's how we know. Yeah. Uh, all right. In the final act of both films, the protagonist co-workers slowly reveal how the men built the park and the lengths they went through, all without ego or hostility. The co-workers then promise to each other that they will live their lives like these great men and vow to make local government work for their constituents. In a depressing turn of events, both groups forego real change, though. In Akiru, this this discussion happens during the wake for Watanabe as they get increasingly more drunk, making more and more elaborate promises. In Living, this discussion happens after the wake and they are on the train ride home, all sober. So I think... For me, it actually changes quite drastically the final scene after when they sort of forego their promises to each other. Because I watch Akiru and you've got these rowdy drunk men being like, and I promise I'm going to be like him and I'm going to make government work and I'm not going to just push people away and file papers and all that sort of stuff. And they make all these grand promises. And then the next scene when they're back in the office and then someone approaches them with a problem and they all just kind of ignore it and file it away again. I sort of looked at it as sort of, you know, whenever you get really drunk and you say like, yeah, I'm going to do this <laughs> and you, and you get sober and you're like, Oh, that was a bad idea. Why did I do that? <laughs> and, and that's what it played out as. And it had yeah. like a real depressing undertone where you sort of wonder, do they remember the promises they made? Did they forget them because they were so drunk did they think it was actually a bad idea? And you actually have a lot of different options of how to interpret it. Whereas in living, the fact that they're sober and then the next day they have the opportunity to correct their uh, inaction and they're just like, nah, we're not going to do it. It just kind of makes them all seem like assholes. Yeah. But assholes, but also just like realistic, you know? I Maybe, mean, yeah. It, I, th- I think to me it's just realistic, like, the fact that you would, I, I don't know. I, I, I've had, I think most people have had moments like you go to your job and I mean, a job's a job, but some days you, you show up and you're super motivated and you're like, this is it. I'm going to turn things around. Like I'm going to, especially when you start new, like I love um, when I, when I used to work like in an office and seeing like new people come in, like younger, people. they're so full of life and just so full of like hope. And they're, they're not 
taken down yet. Um, and so they think that they can elicit all this change. And, and then reality eventually hits for everybody where it's like, there's a reason that, you know, bureaucracy that we, we associate bureaucracy with what we associate it with, you know, like it, it is mundane. It is, um, inefficient. Like that's a big thing is they keep pushing about efficiency in both of these movies, but you know, it's, it's just, to me, it's, I don't know if I would consider either of them assholes or like sadness or anything. To me, it was just more, it's just realistic. Like that, that's how it would probably end up where you get this spurt of motivation because your coworker has passed away and he had a moment of clarity himself, but that came from dying. And these guys are, they're not dying. Well, you know, as far as we know. And so just the day-to-day kind of sets back in. And, and you know, I, I said at the very beginning about the um, the music kind of putting a nice bow on it. Like, this kind of puts a different bow on it mm. as well of just saying, like, it is cyclical. And maybe until these guys have a, a terminal diagnosis themselves, they're not going to um, they're not gonna understand or they're not going to really appreciate life in that way. And round and round it goes kind of thing. And, and it's very depressing that. Yeah. Note, but it is true. And I think that the way that they come about it, you know, in, in Ikiru where they're at the wake and they're all super drunk and things like that, you can also kind of put in there that it's a lot of their grief talking as well, which is, mm-hmm. is an added thing where the living doesn't really explore that living is more of, and I, maybe this is the, the, the stiff up stiff upper lip thing of the Brits, but it's, you know, them just saying, okay, well, all right, old boy, like this is, this is what we're going to do. Like we're, we're going to make changes starting now and never forget it. And it's very kind of quiet and very subtle and very subdued. Um, but in Ikaru, it's a lot of their grief kind of manifesting into probably guilt as well, that they didn't notice things and, um, and, and they took maybe Watanabe for granted and like what he was doing, but Watanabe took his life for granted too, though, to be fair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I, I, it's, it's, it's interesting. I thought it was interesting that that was like a point that you raised because the way they go about it, it, it does manifest itself in a different way. And then the punch of it, the impact of it is, it is felt differently, even okay. though I think at the end of the day, you could say it's, it's realistic on both ends. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the whole crux of the, this scene, the thesis of, of the movie is basically boils down to that scene. And that's what Kurosawa will want to make. It, and that's what he was sort of basing it on um, the, the Tolstoy concept of the sort of uh, humanity is uh, really sort of only after their own self-interest and won't change if they don't have to and, and all that sort of stuff where it basically because it with uh akiro you get like two and a half hours and it's basically two hours and 15 minutes to lead up to this final 10 minutes uh that is the entire point of this movie and that is why you're watching this story play out is to sort of feel the gut punch of the lack of humanity in us all that's so depressing that is like, like it's interesting you say like you go to two hours 15 minutes and literally the end of the movie is there's no growth there's no change yeah. it's just it was all for nothing. Yeah. yeah. Like, the last two hours were for nothing, uh, which is maybe also why, you know, audiences aren't really feeling that today. Cause I think audiences today, we like to see like a change, right? Like we want to yeah. see a character get better. Things get better. Um, we want some hope or something like that, but you know, it, it's, it is a lot more depressing than that. And that's probably, I suppose something just with age that you kind of accept it, that, you know, things don't really change from, era to era and like, i think like, it's fascinating as well like i had said before that i would love to have seen or i would still love to see a modern day interpretation of this because that end point will still be the same mm-hmm. right like it, and and all of us can still relate to it and i'm sure 50 years before um akiru came out people then thought the same way you know and like it it is it's just it's just really depressing, isn't it? That it's like that 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 circle of life just kind of continues on, and um, yeah, and we never seem to be able to get out of it. Mm-hmm. It's funny. All in all, it basically feels like one uh, dramatic episode of Parks and Recreation. <laughs> in a weird way, yeah, you're right. Actually, when I was watching this with my brother, he kept saying to me, "Oh, is this like Parks and Rec?" I'm like, "Shut <laughs> up!" Like it's. It yes. is, but it isn't. Like, shut up. <laughs> he did kept bringing that up because he was like, oh, it's like, it's like Parks and Rec. Like, they're trying to build the park. I'm like, 
why are you here? And then I kept telling him, maybe you should go somewhere else. You don't need to watch this with me. <laughs> so much so that the very first season of Parks and Rec is them literally trying to fill a hole and build a park. Yeah. Uh, it's a dangerous part that people keep getting hurt in. Actually, now that I think about it, do you think that they lifted it? Like they kind of took a bit of... I wonder. Because it's Michael Schur, right? Like that's yeah. one of his things. And he's he's a big film dude, I believe. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, Michael Schur is like a kind of a bit of a film net. So maybe that actually He probably be proposed and be like, it's Ikaru, but it's funnier. But it's funny. <laughs> With Amy Poehler. Uh, yeah. I Actually, now that... I, I, I never really got into Parks and Rec, but... I it's have really seen the first good. season. I, you know what? I watched like the first couple seasons and I like it. I think I watched it up until Rob Lowe leaves. And then when Rob okay. Lowe left, I was like, oh, I'm good. Don't need to watch it <laughs> anymore. Um, but yeah, it, oddly, yes, there are, we should have done a make remake with Parks and Rec. That maybe, been, maybe. That should have been the thing. That's a double bill movie. pairing. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the farewell in Parks and Rec. Yeah, the farewell in Parks and Rec. If this oddly was very world. fitting though, isn't it? Like yes, oddly yeah. very fitting. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it literally is. If you take Parks and Rec, uh, the the workplace sort of situational comedy, and mix it with <laughs> farewell, refusing to tell someone they're dying, you get Akiru. That's the way to sell it to the 21st century audiences, right there. Just yeah. saying it's it's a cross between Parks and Rec and the farewell. <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah. Uh, do you have any last things you want to mention that are either similarities or differences? Um, no. Just that I really enjoyed both of these movies, and I'm glad that we finally got to do this episode. And it was uh, it was fun actually finally getting to talk to you about living. Yeah, I've been waiting for you for like a year to watch. This. I know, quite literally. Uh, I, I think one little fun thing I want to mention is a little Easter egg I noticed is in Akiru when uh, the young woman leaves the uh, bureaucratic office she goes to work for i guess a toy company and they manufacture these uh rabbits that bounce around mm-hmm. or like wind up rabbits and in living the young girl leaves to become a uh assistant manager at a local restaurant but when they go to the arcade casino sort of thing there is a claw game and she wins a little stuffed rabbit which i thought was a cute little nod to the original I love when movies do that. Like, I like when there's these little, I, we call them Easter eggs now, but it's like, I like when there's these little nods mm-hmm. um, to the older films that really kind of doesn't matter, right? Like, it, it doesn't no. matter in a way. Um, but it's just like a nice little, um, respect might be a bit too big of a word to put on that. But like, I just think it's nice. It's like, homage, I would say. Yeah, like, it's just a nice acknowledgement of your source material, um, yeah. which I, yeah, I like, respect like it that. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't make any difference to the plot, but it was a nice little th- sort of thing because both both films do feature scenes of them going to this sort of like casino arcade sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so it made sense. Uh, and then using the claw game with the little rabbit was just sort of a nice and then it shows up in a second scene later again. Uh, so I, I, I like that. Yeah, and I liked in living like they took him to the coast as well, because that's usually... When I saw that, like I just think of like Brighton, where they have mm. the um, the pier and they have the little arcade thing inside, which does feel kind of not of this era. When I yes. I remember going there and just thinking like, oh, this feels so old school that there's this little kind of arcadey like, and and they have new arc like games, like it's not like old kind of games, but that claw game that has endured for many decades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that claw thing, that's a giant ripoff. Um, it's just endured for generation to generation. But. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and then everything else is sort of like little small things. And Akiru, he's called Mr. Zombie. And in Living, it, oh, sorry, m- the mummy. And, and mummy, yeah. He's Mr. Zombie, stuff like that. Um, I, I don't think he he's hitting on the young girl in Living, whereas there's a bit of a flirtation sort of misunderstanding in Akiru. Uh, I don't think he's hitting on her in Akiru. I, though, I don't I think like- he is either, but she interprets it as he yeah, is. Yeah, and I... I would say, though, and I think in Living, she at first interprets it as that, but he gets it out quicker that he's sick. Yes. Like, I think that he mentions it faster, and whereas in Ikiro, he doesn't. And again, because he's so intense, like, it does feel creepy. Like I get A little it. bit, yeah. yeah. I, I, I would be a little creeped out, too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think this was a, a lovely pairing, and I am really glad we did it. Uh, so we'll we'll have to figure out uh, how to continue the Kurosawa trend of our of our make. Well, I think we should probably do the the New Hope. That actually makes a lot of sense. We could get Matthew in here, and he can he can ride the whole show. Like it'd be great. 
<laughs> yeah, we'll have to talk to him about that. Uh, all right. Well, Rachel, where can listeners find you and what have you been working on? Uh, go to rachelkh.com um, for everything. And my Twitter is underscore Rachel KH. What have I been working on? Um, oh, was, like I kind of talked very briefly at the beginning of the episode where I watched the movie. It's Alison Brie and Dave Franco's new movie. What's it called? Somebody I used to know. Uh, I just put a review of that on Exclaim. And that is basically my best friend's wedding. Basically. Oh. But my best friend's wedding is far better. I'm just, <laughs> just saying. It's so much better. Uh, but there's that. And then... Um, on the Asian cut, which you can go on to, we had a new writer, Wilson Kwong, who put up a review for Polite Society, uh, which is a movie that was at Sundance this year. Um, and it's a British, South Asian British movie, uh, which is fun. It's fun. I, I only watched a bit of it. I didn't watch the whole movie, so I can't really say. Um, but I also do want to say for people who uh, are interested, who like living and you're interested in Oliver uh, Hermanus's work, he has a movie called Mafia out. Um it's a South African movie. It's very, very good. And I would recommend anybody go and watch it. It's, it's a fantastic movie. Interesting. Yeah. It's one that I haven't heard of. Um, I'll have it's to, very good. on my radar. It's like an apartheid movie, era movie. And, um, uh, a young man has to, he's put into like conscription basically for the army. And, um, but he's closeted. Uh, and it's, it's very, it's very, very good. It's very sad. It's very intense, but it's a very, very good movie. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that recommendation. Uh, this has been a That Shelf podcast. Visit thatshelf.com for more great film discourse. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. What original in remake should we consider for a future iteration of this series? Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well, except for the last one. Uh, and if you really like <laughs> oh, consider tipping us on coffee, thank you for checking us out. Mm-hmm.